Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you once again. My name is Tony, in case I haven't met you yet. Uh, my family and I are new here, and I'm here as one of your pastors now at CBC, and I'm glad to be. So I just want to extend my gratitude for that once again, and also say thank you for the ways that you guys have already helped us, served us, and that you've been praying for us as we've been adjusting for the last few weeks. Uh, before we start, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer one more time. God, we ask for your mercy even right now that you would give us what we don't deserve, which is to hear from you clearly so that we can love you rightly and obey you, to follow you in obedience, to look to you for mercy and for our only hope. We thank you that we have that opportunity right now. We pray that you would use your word to convict us, to correct us, and to change us so we look more like your merciful son, Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen. So summertime is here. It's still here in full effect. We can tell that from a few different ways, whether it's the warmth or the thunderstorms that have been coming and going or even from the travel, as many of you have been traveling in and out uh, for the last several weeks. I personally love traveling, and my least favorite mode of travel is by car. Although that's how we got up here. It took us around 16 hours. We did over a few days as we traveled here for a few weeks. Um, But I'll go anywhere on a plane, just letting you guys know that. But for those of us who travel a lot and Speaking specifically to the kids in the room, when you're traveling with your parents, your family somewhere, what are some of the questions that you ask your parents? Yes? Are we there yet? That's the main question. That's what I was looking for. If you're like my kids, then you're not only going to ask, are we there yet? you're going to ask how many hours or minutes it's going to take for us to be there, right? Because we're just eager to get there and unpack and make ourselves home. And while you're traveling, sometimes it's nice and smooth, but sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's a little frustrating when you're traveling and you see the GPS says you still have seven more hours. It's like, here we go, right? You take all these things with you on your journey because you want to be as comfortable as possible. You want to have what you need. So you take your toys if you're kids or your teddies or you take money or pillows or bags or books or way too many clothes. But as we're approaching God's word today, we're approaching a part of scripture where God's people are on their own journey. And their journey is towards Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And as they are trying to get there, they're actually in a dark point because their journey is not going that well. And in fact, they haven't arrived yet. So they're asking, are we there yet? And the answer is clearly no. And as we know from God's word, there's various parts of scriptures that teach that we are pilgrims and sojourners in this world So if we were to ask ourselves the question, are we there yet? Are we home yet? The answer is still no. So then what do we need along the journey? In God's word today, we're going to see that God's people are pleading for one thing specifically, and it's God's mercy. Mercy. 
Before we get to the text, let's try to define what that word means, because it can be a little bit tricky to, to define sometimes. So maybe you can think about sports, for example. Maybe you've been on a team where you were winning so heavily that the clock just started to run and it didn't stop. It was like a mercy clock so that the game could be over it really quickly. Or maybe you were on the losing side of that, right? That's called a, a mercy rule. Or maybe you've watched sports and you see people competing, the game's clearly over, the guy wants to go and shoot another basket and then the other team get mad. Why do they get mad? Because their pride is pricked, right? But they're also saying, be merciful, you've already won. Like, let it go, relieve us of all this. Don't pile it on. That's what they could be saying when they're asking for mercy. But sports aside, to be merciful means to show compassion, to give what, you, what others don't deserve, or to give in an opposite way of what you could give because you have the authority to do really whatever you want in that position. So still thinking about mercy, kids, you can think way back several months ago when you all were studying the book of Genesis. You think of an example of someone in Genesis being merciful to their sibling, their brother or sister. Joseph, right? He was merciful to his brothers who put him into slavery. What did he say at the end of Genesis in Genesis chapter 50? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. He was being merciful to them. And in these Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, chapters 120 through 134, you have all different kinds of prayers of God's people, prayers of praise, prayers of joy, prayers of longing, prayers of lament, prayers of asking for mercy. And this is one of those lament songs, looking for mercy. This is on page 517. If you haven't turned there, please meet me in Psalm 123. I'm going to read it. This is God's word. God's word reads, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are, who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. If you're taking notes this morning, here's the main point. God's people should look and long for God's mercy. God's people should look and long for God's mercy. And we'll basically focus our, our arms, our, our thoughts around asking and answering two questions. Where should we look for mercy and why should we long for mercy? Where should we look for mercy and why should we long for it? So first of all, where should we look for mercy? We should look to the enthroned king for mercy. That's exactly what the psalmist starts out by saying in verse 1. He says, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. That's actually a callback to Psalm chapter 121, which maybe you can read later. But it starts out by saying, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? But he answers it by saying, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 
But this looking up to the Lord was not casual. It was not a casual glance. It also was not easy to do. Because that word there for lift can be, can be translated to carry. So I carry my eyes to the Lord. That seems like it's some work to get up there. That seemed like these sojourners, these pilgrims, God's people, as they're making their way to Jerusalem, that they were having a hard time, that it was challenging for them to look up to the Lord. Have you been there? Are you there right now? Where you know you should look to the Lord, but it takes a lot of work and effort to do that. But by looking up to the Lord, even through, though we're going through these circumstances, we're showing that we're not looking at people for our solution or for our help or for our relief or for our mercy, that we are looking to the Lord himself, the one who rules, who's sovereign over all things and is enthroned in the heavens. It's what Spurgeon says about this verse. He says, God is in heaven as a king in his palace. He is here revealed, adored, and glorified. Thence, he looks down on the world and sends support to his saints as their needs demand. Hence, we look up even when our sorrow is so great that we can do no more. If your sorrow is great this morning, you can't do anything else but go to the Lord in prayer. Keep doing that because that's what you should be doing. Look to the Lord. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He is enthroned on his throne. He's still there, and nobody's changing that. The Lord is enthroned in the heavens. He's there, and he alone sits there, and that seat will never, ever be vacant. That's why it says in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. So if the Lord is enthroned in the heavens, then that implies that he is king and that he rules over all nations, over all things, over all of our lives. As Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And the psalmist here is acknowledging what is hard to remember by us during our trials that God is still sovereign even through our trials. He reigns over them. He's not surprised. He's not caught off guard, and he's not indifferent towards our suffering. He's our king, but he's unlike any other king. And the good news for us is that when we're weary and when we're burdened, we can lift our eyes to our heavenly king and know that he's not just sovereign, meaning he rules over all things, but he's also a good king. Psalm 119.68 says, You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. So we need to remember his goodness as we are lifting our eyes to him. Not just that he's sovereign, but that he's good. That he loves us. He longs to hear from his people. And he doesn't get burdened by us going to him over and over and over again. Here's what Tim Keller once said about us and this access that we have in going to our king. He says, the only person that dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. He's not too busy. He's not easily angered or frustrated. 
And we can go to him and find his mercy every single time we do it. So we should go to our king just like the psalmist does here in prayer. But notice that the psalmist does not go to the throne of grace all by himself. Look again at verse 2. It says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of a maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord, our God, till he has mercy upon us. So we should look to the enthroned king for mercy, but we should also look to our master's hand for mercy. We should also look to our master's hand. So here in verse 2, you see a shift from the singular to a plural. It starts with, I lift up my eyes. And then verse 2, it talks about we are lifting up our eyes, our eyes to our king until he has mercy upon us. And that's a beautiful picture of what happens when we gather as a church together. We're basically trying to go from the singular to the plural in our prayers, in our singing, in our giving, in our hearing of God's word being read, in our hearing of God's word being preached, in our taking the Lord's Supper together, in our fellowship that we have afterwards. We are going from singular to plural. Together we're worshiping. We're looking at our master's hand for help with one another. But we don't just have that access to one another when we step foot in Spelman or Bladensburg or wherever we gather. We can lean on our brothers and sisters in Christ even throughout the week as we need help, as we need mercy, as we need to be reminded of God's goodness and the grace that he gives to us. Together we can lift our eyes to our master's hand. And the hand here, this metaphor is used for various different reasons. <clears throat> because hands reflect help, they reflect provision, guidance, and even protection. And this is what the Lord does for his people. He helps us. He provides for us. He guides us. He protects us. And as a good master, he gives good gifts to his children. And because of his great mercy through Jesus Christ, his hand is not against us. The psalmist is asking for mercy here, and it's beautiful because it's demonstrating that he is requesting and they are requesting something that they don't deserve from the Lord. They don't deserve the Lord to act on their behalf. They don't deserve the Lord to intervene in their situation. They need his mercy. And that's a good reminder for all of us as we pray. Because sometimes our prayers can be a little bit too proud. Like, God, look at all that I've done for you. Why am I still in these circumstances? Almost like, God, how dare you? Don't you notice what I've done in your name? All that I've given, all that I served, all that I sacrificed. But all that we have earned from God is his judgment. And yet he has decided to give us his mercy. So I should humble us as we go to the Lord in prayer, remembering that anything we get from the Lord is mercy and from his merciful hands. We need to remember who God is and who we are as we approach his throne. And I think that's why the psalmist here is using this metaphor of the, the slave and the master in verse 2. 
It also uses these references to a, a maidservant and to a mistress, which is basically saying the same thing. In both cases, their eyes are looking to the hand of the master. So if you think about that, that means somebody's above the other person, literally and even figuratively. What would they be looking for? They're looking for help. They're looking for hope. They're looking for relief. They're looking for mercy. And that's an acknowledgement that someone else has authority and someone else is in charge. Now, this, this metaphor of master and slave here, it might be a little bit uncomfortable for us to sit with, and there's a few reasons for that. It seems defaming. It seems like it's demeaning, right? Or our minds might quickly go to slavery and slavery that existed in the history of this country, for example. The kidnapping, the separating of families, forbidding to educate, forbidding to even worship the Lord and go to church, the violence, the lynchings, the racisms, the subsequent Jim Crow laws that upheld all those things, all that seen as evil in the eyes of the Lord. Let's be clear about that. And let's also be clear that slavery, unfortunately, still exists to this day. You have organizations like the International Justice Mission that estimate there are over 40 million people in the world who are enslaved today through human trafficking. This should grieve us as the people of God. This should move us to pray and move us to act as we feel led to for the good work that many organizations are doing like this to help to put that to an end. But I think there's other reasons why we feel uncomfortable with these references of master and slave as they come up in the scripture, particularly here. And it's because we don't often see ourselves as slaves of God. It's hard for us to see ourselves as slaves or servants to the Lord. As opposed to looking up to the Lord, as the, the psalmist is describing here in this psalm, we sometimes act as if the Lord and us are at, at eye level. We're seeing someone who's our equal, and we're discussing and negotiating things with them. Instead of having the Lord on the throne of our lives, sometimes we prefer to occupy that seat, or at least have a turn. But to be a Christian is to be a slave of God. The Bible is very clear about that. The Bible teaches that we will all be either slaves to righteousness or unrighteousness. That's Romans chapter 6. And Jesus said we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve God and money. That means that we're serving someone or something. The apostles Paul and even Peter, as they introduced themselves in some of their letters, they described themselves as servants or slaves of Christ Jesus. And they don't flinch in doing so. And even Jesus calls his followers to deny themselves, carry their cross, and follow him. Or think about that haunting question that Jesus asked in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, where he says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? The Lord is the Lord, and he expects us to obey him. This is the call to follow Jesus. It's not Christianity 201 or 301. This is the basics. Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. So Christian, are we living as if Jesus is in charge or as if we are the ones that are in control? 
My first time in an Uber was here in D.C. around 2016 when I was here for a work conference. Before then, we were living in London, so if you wanted to get somewhere, you walked, you got on a bus, or you got on a train. So it was a new concept to me, but I eventually got used to it. Most of us know how this works, right? We might have the app on our phone. We need to get somewhere, you open up your app, you put in the address that you want to go to, the driver, once you select them, you get to sort of filter them out. No, nah, I don't want that one. They don't have enough stars, right? I, you pick the one that you want. They pick you up, and they take you where you tell them to go. You've already put in that address for them to get to, right? Some of them are very chatty. Some of them don't talk to you at all. And if you're like me, you love when they don't speak to you very much. You get in the back seat, they might have chargers back there, might be air freshener, they might have peppermints, bottles of water. They're trying to make sure that you enjoy the trip all along the way so that you give them a good rating. They're trying to not just get you to where you want to go, they're trying to make you comfortable all the way through it. And sometimes we think that Jesus is our Uber driver, where he's taking us only where we want to go to. And he's going to give us only comfort along the way, or he's going to get our bad review, or we're not going to tip him. It does not work like that with the Lord, brothers and sisters. It does not work that way. We need to trust in Jesus to be the one that leads us and that guides us all along the way. He invites us to take a back seat and to trust him along the way for the ride. And if you're listening to this and you aren't a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, that sounds really strange to you. In fact, that might be why you're like, I don't know about this Jesus stuff. I want to be my own master. I want to be in control. Why would I give anybody else control? Why would anybody allow themselves to be slaves of Jesus Christ? But it's because Jesus is a much better and he's a merciful master. And that's the whole message of the gospel, that the Lord who is enthroned in heavens, created the heavens and the earth, the ruler of all people and of all things, created us in his image for his glory. We are the ones that messed that up because we want to be the throne of our hearts and in the throne of our lives. And we deserve, therefore, God's punishment for that because we said that we could be better at being God and we are clearly not. But God didn't leave us as our sins deserve. He sent his son, Jesus, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. He laid aside his crown for our souls. He came to this world. He lived a sinless life, but he died a sinner's death on the cross, the death that you and I deserved for our sin. But he rose victoriously on the third day and is right now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the throne of grace. And one day we'll come back to establish his reign here on earth. And only Jesus can set us free from slavery to sin. And only Jesus can set us free from slavery to ourselves. If you're here and you're not a Christian, give your life to Jesus today. He's a much better master. He's merciful. And a bunch of people here would love to talk to you about what that means. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, are you in need of mercy this morning? Do you feel like the Lord has been slow to answer or respond to your call for mercy? 
If so, keep looking. Did you notice that the psalmist says here at the end of verse 2, so we look to the Lord till he has mercy on us. And they keep looking. How long would that take? You don't know. And if you notice, the psalm doesn't resolve with a bow on the end of it like many psalms do. It doesn't seem like the Lord has answered their cries for mercy yet by the time you get to the end of verse 4. How long, O Lord, that yearning seems to continue over and over. If you ever prayed that prayer, or if you're in a season of longing, if you're saying to yourselves, how long will this last? Keep going to the Lord. In fact, if you don't have words for that, go to the Psalms and find you will have a voice in there to go directly to the Lord with what you want to say, but you don't have words to say. It even says in Romans 8, when we don't know what to say or don't know how to pray, we can go to the Lord with our groanings and with our tears, and the Holy Spirit interprets that. In other words, keep looking and keep going to the Lord, because he will eventually show his mercy toward us, even if we have to wait. For any of us in the room right now who speak Spanish, there might be a few of us, How do you say the word hope in Spanish? Shout it out, anybody. Esperanza. You didn't know that, now you know. Esperanza. What about wait? How do you say that word in Spanish? Esperar. Esperanza and esperar. Doesn't that sound similar? They have the same root word. Well, Christian... Hoping and waiting are synonyms in the Christian life. If we're putting our hope in the Lord, that means we're content to wait on him. And as we wait on him, he is going to increase our hope and joy in him. They both go together. They sound the same because in Christ they are the same as we are living in this world. And we can wait and hope because we've been brought into a living hope. That's what we've been learning from 1 Peter, because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And we have an inheritance that's being guarded by by God and kept for us until the last day when we get to see it, when Christ is revealed to us. So So if we find mercy by looking up to the king's throne and looking to the master's hand, and Christian, keep looking. Keep looking, because in Christ we can see God's mercy for us. This brings us to our second point. Why should we long for mercy? Why should we long for mercy? The short answer for that is because we all need mercy, right? We all need grace. We all need need unmerited favor. We all need people to let us off the hook, or go easy on us. We all need forgiveness. We all need mercy. And remember, God's people, since we've received this mercy for God, we are also called to be merciful to others in light of the mercy that we have received. Matthew 5, 7, Jesus says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. 
So before we get back to Psalm 123, is there someone today that needs your mercy? They didn't earn it. Maybe they don't deserve it. And maybe you don't want to give it. But is there someone that you need to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness towards? Remember we talked about the singular to the plural. If that's the case and you're struggling with that, you don't need to struggle with that by yourself. Bring your brothers and sisters in Christ along with you to help you, to pray for you, to encourage you, because they may have gone through the same thing that you're going through. But in Psalm 123 specifically, there's a more direct answer to that question, why should we long for mercy? And the answer is because on our journey, we will face contempt. We will face contempt. Look again at verse 3. It says, have mercy, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. That might sound a little bit odd, right? They're asking for mercy, but because they're facing contempt or scorn or there's prideful people around them. Well, let's define those terms. Content and scorn, they basically mean the same thing. But it means to view someone or something as worthless, as meaningless. That means for someone to be hated or to be despised. And this contempt that God's people were receiving were more than likely coming from the enemies of God, the people who did not follow the Lord as they're journeying or as they're making their way up to Jerusalem. Remember, this was many, many years ago. They didn't just call an Uber to get there, right? They couldn't just get on a plane. They were making their journey towards Jerusalem to worship the Lord. What do you think they may have been hearing from God's enemies along the way? Your God's not real. You're wasting your time. Why are you doing this? Or maybe their scoffing sounded more like the serpent in the garden. Did God really say? Did he really say that? And again, remember that God's people are called pilgrims and, and, and sojourners in God's word. We are heading home to glory, but we are not there yet. And along the way, we will face scoffing and contempt and even hatred because we name the name of Christ. Some of us know what this is like firsthand. Maybe we've experienced this from coworkers who are constantly trying to find a way to dig at us. Maybe we're the subject of jokes or mocking. Maybe we're looked over for the promotions that we should deserve or that we've rightly earned but we're not given that because we named the name of Christ. Or we're constantly put in positions where we're being forced or we're tempted to compromise on biblical values. Maybe some of our kids and teens understand this as well. Maybe receiving scorn or contempt or mocking from teachers or even classmates. Or maybe for some of us who are on college campuses. And following Christ is considered as a joke and is constantly mocked. I know what that's like, too. Maybe you remember this if you have already been to college. You have this one professor, or maybe there are several, who make it their aim to mock Christianity. I had one religious studies professor who gave all of this 
this deference and respect and, and all of these different positive things towards any of the major world religions we were studying, except Christianity. There all the jokes would come out. There all the mocking would come out. And this is silly, this is ridiculous, and all this other stuff. Maybe you've sat in that seat along the way in your life. What do you do when you feel like that? It makes you want to, like, slump down in your seat, right? And, like, let me just try to run out of here quickly. Let me not raise my hand to ask or answer a question anymore, right? Or maybe let me just try to blend in so that no one makes fun of me or, or that I'm not the subject of scorn anymore. If you feel that way now, let me encourage you with this. If you're in that situation at your job or in school or anything like that, narrow your focus. What I mean is, don't focus on the fog of the crowd, of mockers, or people who are scorning. Focus on the few who aren't, because I guarantee you there will be someone there, maybe one person, who's actually listening, who's actually wrestling with some of these questions, or who might actually be a Christian themselves. Ask the Lord to show you, through all that fog, who he wants you to serve and minister to in that context, and he'll show you. And even still, the contempt that's described here may be hard for many of us to, to connect with, right? Like, we, we understand that we're Christians and that in this world we will have trouble. But if we honestly think about it, we're like, I don't have that much trouble. Nobody mocks me. Nobody makes fun of me. People know that I'm a Christian. I'm not hiding it. They don't treat me any differently, right? Well, this should remind us to pray more fervently for our brothers and sisters in Christ in countries like Iran, because it is not the case there for Christians. That we would use our freedoms and that we would use our opportunities to pray and to gather for all the best reasons to go to the Lord on their behalf to ask that he would give them mercy and strength to endure. It should also help us to share the faith with more joy and with more eagerness because even if we do face contempt and scorn, it's not going to look like that. We're more than likely not going to have our lives threatened. So that should encourage us as we long to share the gospel with others. But actually, in our context, the, the, the scorn or the contempt that we feel and we often receive, it doesn't sound like loud jeering. It sounds like deafening silence. Meaning you invited that neighbor to church. They don't mind saying, yeah, they'll come but they won't show up. Or you'll have conversations and someone will nod with you and they'll be respectful, but then they won't give you any sort of response. They won't turn to Christ. They harden their hearts. Or they just don't say anything at all. It's like, why did those neighbors suddenly start ignoring us when we told them that we're Christians? Sometimes the scorn that we receive looks more like that. It's apathy or indifference. What do we do about that? We do the same exact thing. We go to the Lord. We ask for his help. We ask for strength to endure. We ask for help to navigate these relationships and how and when we should speak and for the Lord to give us the wisdom and what we should say to our neighbors, coworkers, family members, etc. 
Keep going to him. Notice the ones here that are doing the scorning. They are described as those who are at ease. They have it easy. They're described also as proud. Maybe you've seen that as well. If you look at these neighbors or these coworkers and everything else, they might have similar trials that you have in your life, but they don't have to bury a cross on top of it. They're not trying to follow Jesus on top of all that. Teens might feel that way too. Your peers are looking for colleges. They're trying to figure stuff out in their life too, but they're not trying to do it while honoring Jesus at the same time with all this stuff on top of it. That even might feel burdensome. But remember that Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we can carry our cross in whatever context with hope because Jesus carried his cross. And also Jesus told us that this would happen, right? He said in Matthew 5, 43, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That assumes that we would have enemies. Or in John 15, 18, he says, do not be surprised when the world hates you, for it hated me first. So don't be caught off guard or surprised by this. Or even in John 16, 33, where he says, in this world, you will have trouble. What kind of trouble, Jesus? He just says trouble. But take heart, he says, for I have overcome the world. Our Jesus is an overcomer. We can put our hope in him even as we are despised in this world. We can take heart and go to him and humbly wait for him to answer and to be merciful for, to us whenever he decides to. And these scoffers here, they were at ease as these pilgrims were making their way to Jerusalem. And they were proud, God's word says, which is the opposite of what we see in God's people here. Why do we see that? Because they went to the Lord in prayer. And they prayed even about the mocking or the scoffing that they were receiving from God's enemies. It should also encourage us to go to the Lord in prayer. If you want to grow in humility, one way to do that is to pray a lot. Because in doing so, we're saying that the Lord is in charge and we're not. The Lord knows what to do and how to respond, and we don't. And we need his help. He doesn't need our help. But he calls us to go to him over and over and over again. And notice also that the people here, God's people, they ask for mercy. They say why they need mercy, but they don't prescribe what that should look like. It's unlike some of the other psalms where it says, God, just wipe those people out. Where sometimes we're like, yeah, let's do that. It doesn't say what the Lord should do. He just asks for mercy, leaving it in his hands to respond how he wants and when he wants. That takes humility. And I think that's why this is a model prayer in a lot of ways. And it can help us to pray in humility. They're doing basically what Jesus eventually taught his followers to do. Our Father who art in heaven, meaning putting God in his rightful place. Our eyes look to the king who's enthroned in the heavens. Hallowed be your name. Your name is holy. You are the king. You are the one that's enthroned. Your kingdom come, your will be done, meaning you respond, you answer as you see fit, or in other words, have mercy upon us. We're going to look to you until you show us your mercy. 
Jesus not only showed his followers that this was the way to pray, he lived it out himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, for example, example, as he awaited the agony of the cross, he cried out to his Father, but not for his will to be done, for his Father's will to be done. And it was the Father's will for for the Son to be crushed. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and all along the way he was mocked, he was scorned, He was beaten. He was spat on. All along the way, he was wrongly accused. He was given a cross to bear. And the people, they looked on as he hung there, mocking him, scorning him all along the way. Even before he got to the cross, he was given a crown of thorns just to mock him. A scarlet robe just to mock him. But that couldn't even cover his glory because he was still majestic. He was nailed to a cross and, and left there to die. And even while he was there, he was mocked. Come down from the cross and save yourselves. As if Jesus was the one that needed saving. Through all of this, we learn in 1 Peter, and we'll eventually learn in 1 Peter chapter 2, that Jesus committed no sin through all this. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one that judges justly. Brothers and sisters, if we are enduring contempt, and as we endure contempt, we need to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior and our example. He calls us to endure with hope. He calls us to endure with joy. He calls us to entrust ourselves, our lives, to the one that judges justly. You feel wrongly accused or some situation's not going out the way it should be? Remember that we have a just judge on the throne who's going to judge rightly. He will make the way. He will judge rightly for us. And unlike many of these psalms, many of the psalms of ascent, like I talked about earlier, this psalm doesn't end with a nice, neat conclusion. It's kind of like a song that ends, that doesn't resolve. It's like, what's that? No. Something else should be coming afterwards. God's people are still pleading and still looking and longing for mercy. But I think that's precious for us because we might feel that way too. You might feel towards the end of this sermon, which we're at right now, I'm still looking and longing for God's mercy. Keep looking. And if you doubt that the Lord will be merciful to you, look at the cross where the merciful king's hands were pierced for you, for me, for our salvation. Where the enthroned king endured the contempt of the proud. He endured the jeering. He endured the mocking so that we could go to the king and we could receive his mercy, which we don't deserve, instead of his wrath, which we have earned. Look to the Lord and keep looking because he's merciful. Let's pray. God, we long for your mercy. We know that we've received your mercy in Christ, so we praise you for that, Lord. But in our various situations in our lives, as we face scorn or contempt or frustrations, 
or we're in desperate need of hope, of healing, of joy, we ask that you would have mercy upon us, that you would respond, that you would answer, and that you would all the more increase our trust in you as we wait for you to respond and answer, knowing that because of Jesus Christ, you've already answered our greatest need. So you will continue to give your children what we need. God, be merciful to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.